challenge and inspire us, we pray. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. I'd like us to look at our two readings uh, this morning. You might like to have them in front of you every now and then to glance at the words. Uh, our gospel lesson is short and sweet, and it's quite different to the parable of the sower, which comes just before it in Mark's gospel. In most Bibles, it's labeled here the parable of the growing seed. And it's a story that was very relevant to everyday life in Palestine, speaking of the cycle of growth, the miracle of life, if you like. The seed is scattered randomly, cast broadly, where we get broadcast from. There's no mention, as was said in the reflection by Canon Tony Ingleby, of assistance or help to assist the growth. For at the end of the day, God brings forth the life although we can cooperate with God uh, in the process. The miracle, if you like, of God's work, God's life. Harvest is about returning thanks to God, our creator. This is God's world, not ours. All we are, all we have is a gracious gift. And we are stewards of what's been entrusted to us. So we come today to worship the one who's provided for us, the giver of good food and all that we need to exist, and to reflect on whether we are good stewards, generous stewards. Remembering, too, to pray for God's earthly agents like farmers and others who help us to enjoy God's bounty. Yet there's a key point that's often missed in this parable. Let's go back to the beginning of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, our Lord pronounced, the kingdom of God is at hand. And this little parable is about the kingdom of God. And the key point is the way that the kingdom grows. Just as growth develops organically in the natural world, so it is with God's reign in people's lives. When God is in control, when he reigns supreme, fruit will come. What's more, God will harvest the kingdom when it's ripe. Remember that Jesus himself was a sign of the kingdom, the embodiment, if you like, where God is in control. The kingdom of God is at hand. And I think it's as we grasp that God is sovereign over all, that Jesus is Lord, the Son of the living God, it's as we live his life and as we follow his teaching that we capture something of what God's kingdom is really all about. For when God reigns in us, when Jesus is the Lord of our life, our master, the kingdom then becomes evidenced in our lives. If you like, if we get that bit right, it just happens. This means surrendering, if you like, the cycle of our lives to God. Our ordinary daily routine, the rat race 
of life. What does it mean for God to reign supreme in your life, in your ordinary routine? But if we get that right, the rat race can be transformed into the race for life. There's so much that we don't understand about the kingdom of God. But Jesus was telling us that it will grow regardless. You may be depressed about figures in the church or what have you. It's not our kingdom, it's God's kingdom. And it will grow because it's destined to do so. And in addition, there is an end game. Mark 4, verse 29. As soon as the corn is ripe, he puts sickle to it because the harvest has come. And Paul knew all about this. That's why he wrote these words. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God. Life may be tough, but ultimately God is sovereign. And whether we experience in this life or the next, one day we will know that he is in control. One day all things will be put right. All the pain and the hurt, all the positives and life's blessings will be brought together for good. We might not be able to see it or understand it, but at the end of the day, the scriptures make it clear there will be a harvest of the kingdom. For the king rules and justice is his in the end. But are we ready for it? So this little parable is very significant. And I want to ask, what does it mean then for us to have this in the back of our minds at harvest? As we offer our thanks to God today, I want us to ask, is God sovereign in our lives? Are we living Christian lives that really believe that God is sovereign? That the kingdom of God is at hand? Do we really submit ourselves to the Lordship of Christ? And is that submission evidence in our response to harvest? Today, many of us have brought our harvest gifts to church and thank you for all the gifts that are displayed to my left and to my right. Some may have even forgotten totally. Hands up. No, don't do that. <laughs> Let's be honest. Some people have come to church today and thought, oh, crumbs, it's harvest. I've forgotten. I wonder what went through your mind when you were thinking about what you'd bring for harvest today. What was going on in your heart? You see, all giving is our response to God's grace. It's not meant to be prescriptive, but from the heart as the Lord leads us. Having said that, did you really submit yourself to Christ? Did you really pray about what you might bring today? Or did you quickly do it out of duty and out of habit to make sure you've ticked the box? Let me come back to that in just a moment. Let's move on to our other passage. This one is about Cain and unfortunate Abel, if you know how the story progresses. Cain was the firstborn of Adam and Eve. Abel was their second child. Cain worked for the, in the soil, an agricultural crop farmer, if you like. Abel kept flocks. He was a pastoral shepherd. And today's Old Testament reading tells us that they both 
brought their offering to the Lord. Cain, it says, brought some of the first fruits of the soil. Abel bought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. But their offerings were received differently by God. Now, we're not entirely sure why. It's great fun looking in the commentaries to see what people make of it. But all we know is the Lord looked on favor upon Abel's offering, but on Cain's offering, he didn't look with favor. And Cain becomes angry about this. And rather than looking up to God with praise, his face is downcast. He's depressed. He becomes self-centered. And we read that he goes on to kill his brother. What's interesting in this story is the story of the fall continues. Remember, Eve was talked into eating the forbidden fruit by the devil. She doesn't do what God wants, but she and then Adam do their own thing. And we have something different here. Adam and Eve's firstborn are also tempted and, they, uh, and falls. Rather than being talked into it by the devil, God tries to talk him out of it. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. See how God's trying to talk him out of it? And here, I believe, it's the first mention of the word sin in the Bible. The story goes on. Cain doesn't listen to God. Uh, he doesn't master the evil impulses that are within him. Rather, he takes his brother's life. God asks him, where is Abel? He lies. He says, am I my brother's keeper? Of course, the answer should have been yes. Sin was no longer crouching at the door, but it had pounced. Let's go back a bit. Why was God disappointed with Cain's offering from the soil? We're not actually told. Some commentators have said, well, it must have been to do with blood. Cain's offering was a cereal offering. Abel offered a blood sacrifice of animals, and clearly God needed a blood sacrifice uh, in order for him to be pleased. Well, I actually don't think that's, it's, it's very interesting. I don't actually think that's the case. It was quite natural for two people with different trays to offer different offerings. It's more likely that God's dissatisfaction is with Cain himself. What was going on inside of Cain as he brought some of the first fruits, whereas Abel brought the fat portion of his flock? John 1, uh, 3 and 12. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Here I think we're getting to the nub of it. You see, Abel was submitted to God. Cain was doing his own thing. Cain bought something, Abel bought the best. And it could be that Abel had righteously 
come with praise in his heart, but Cain was a bit reluctant. We don't know. All we know is God cursed Cain, and he ends being cast out into the wanderings east of Eden, and the soil is cursed. Now, I'd like us to think about these two readings together, to consider whether we live as though the kingdom of God is at hand, and we take God seriously. Do we truly submit ourselves to God so that growth can take place in our lives? Do we recognize that sin is always crouching at the door and can lead us to be selfishly motivated and not be motivated by the heart of Christ? You see, God has been open-handed towards us. Yet if we're honest, we're so often tight-fisted in response to his grace. We offer some of what we have, but not the fat portions. So let's go back to our harvest displays. What went on in our hearts? Did we bring the first fruits of all that we have, the best? The idea that's there in Deuteronomy 26, you shall take some of the first fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you and shall put it in a basket and you shall go to the place where the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. Did we take the best today? Well, you say, well, we're not farmers. That's easy if you've done your harvest. You can kind of bring it along, put it in the tractor, take it to church. Did we bring the best that we could for the passage and for the Westminster Food Bank? In preparing for today, did you do something to salve your conscience? Or did you do something out of real gratitude to God for his goodness? You see, I believe we often think we're generous. I often think I'm generous. When God might actually think otherwise. It's not how much we give, but what it costs us. It's not whether we have given, but what goes through our hearts when we give and when we decide to give. It's not about what we do compared to other people. It's whether Christ is reigning in our hearts, whether we're truly submitted to him. And I use harvest just as an illustration. This is all about generous Christian living. And let me be honest, much of our giving is out of what is left rather than the first fruits. We pass the homeless person and we look in our pocket to see what's left of the cash or whether we've got enough there to go and buy a sandwich. When we give to the passage or the Westminster Food Bank, we look for the value products on the shelves rather than by the products that we ourselves would choose to give. Do we think less about what we give to others than what we choose to put in the trolley at the end of the shop as a treat for Saturday night that actually might cost more than what we've given for others? When we make our gifts to church and the charity, 
Is it after we've allocated our holidays, our treats, rather than deciding first what we give for the year and then look at how we treat ourselves afterwards? Do you see how the reign of Christ begins to rub and sin might be crouching at the door and we don't actually realize it? What does God think about our giving? When we have our church anniversary appeal, our treasurer's ears have suddenly woken up. (laughs) How will we give? It doesn't matter what we give, but have we really prayed about it? And not just the only giving we give, but as part of our budgeted giving in response to God's grace. When we come to give to the tsunami appeal, which will come, how much will we give and is it salving our conscience or is it submitting to the reign of Christ in our lives? You see, I don't believe God requires a prescriptive amount from us. It doesn't matter whether we give 10% or 5% or 20%, whether we give it before tax or after tax. I don't think it matters at all. What matters is whether you're doing what God is calling you to do. Many Methodists will say, oh, we don't believe in tithing. That's the law. But is that just an excuse to say, actually, I'm not really thinking seriously about my giving at all? The advantage about whatever you decide is right for your tithe is that you're making it part of your discipline of life to give something back to God. And the best, not just what's left over. In the words of the hymn, giving with a glad heart and free, wanting to bless God's socks off if he wore them, because you've just given out of gratitude to him. C.S. Lewis once said, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. I think that's really good. You see, when we bless God, he blesses us. And it's not a formula, not like these false prosperity doctrines you'll hear from some churches that say if you give this, then God will give you that. It doesn't quite work like that. But time and time again in my life, and I think our treasurer will testify to it in the life of this church, when we stretch ourselves and give more than we can afford, because we are grateful, somehow God blesses us in return. Not always financially. Sometimes it's just the joy and satisfaction. Sometimes it's in other ways. But God does bless us. Luke 6, 38. Given it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. True gratitude is not about leftovers. It's sacrificial. There's a cost to it. And there's also the unseen cost of not being submitted to God. With generous lives that bless God means we bless others. The cost is if we're not generous, others are not blessed and we may be judged by our God, because the sin that's been crouching at the door has made us selfish and self-centered and not God-centered. Methodists don't like talking about money, and it's not about money. 
It's about whether God reigns in your heart. That the kingdom of God is hand. If we believe that, it changes everything. I close with a quote from St. Augustine. God is always trying to give good things to us. But our hands are too full to receive them. God is always trying to give good things to us. But our hands are too full to receive them. Amen. Let us pray. And I confess, and I'm sure we all confess, at times we don't think things through enough. In our Methodist routine, we do what we've done before without thinking anew about what you might be calling us to. So we pray today that we may hear your word that you are in control and the kingdom can grow if only we played our part. Fruit will naturally come if we get our perspective right. So forgive us when we are like Cain and make us more able to give and to count the cost.